Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Panasonic Lumix Cameras, where form meets function. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by FreshBooks. They're the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just go to freshbooks.com TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This episode of TWIP is made possible in part by our newest sponsor, Animoto. You can head over to animoto.com slash TWIP and use the offer code TWIP to get 15% off an Animoto Pro account. This week on TWIP, the dawn of the artificial photographer. On the heels of a brand new update, Flickr rolls out new tools with AI to help users organize their photos. Also, the popular Camera 51 Android app comes to iOS. It helps users compose the perfect shot. And Kodak diversifies and reinvents. But is the Kodak moment over? And finally, Brooks Institute changes ownership. Listen to an insightful interview with Brooks president, Dr. Tim Gramley. It's Monday, May 11th, 2015, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. This is going to be a really packed show today. We've got lots of stuff to talk about. We're, we're going to insert an interview into this episode of TWIP. And we've got three co-hosts, so there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about, a lot of good news. Um, but first up, I want to introduce the guy behind the Sprouting Photographer and the co-host of TWIP Weddings, Mr. Brian Caparici. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me back, Frederick. Hey, it's always a pleasure to have you on. You're just all over the network these days, man. <laughs> having lots of fun. Yeah, it's good. All right, also on the show is our host of the wildly popular show on the TWIP network, Street Focus, Ms. Valerie Jardin. Hey, Valerie. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Doing good. How does it yeah. feel to be on the other side of the mic? Oh, it's, it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice not to be driving. Not too much work. It's nice. <laughs> yeah. And uh, last but not least, the host of another wildly popular show on the TWIP networks called Your Itinerary, hosted by Mr. Rob Knight. Hey, Rob. Hey, guys. How's it going? It's going good. Look at this. We got four TWIP hosts here. <laughs> four hosts the in one room. Team or... I know. It's, this is crazy. This is crazy. This is good. All right. So before we dive in, I want to thank our first sponsor for this episode of TWIP, and that's our good friends over at Panasonic Lumix Cameras. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by Panasonic Lumix Cameras and the new Lumix FZ1000 4K long zoom digital camera. Now this bridge camera is a powerhouse for shooting 4K hybrid photography. You know, hybrid is when you mix stills and video. And this camera shoots at 4K in 30p. You can then, once you shoot that footage, you can later extract 8 megapixel stills from the 4K footage. It's just crazy. And it features a large 1 inch 20.1 megapixel sensor. And it's got a bright Leica 25 to 400 f2.8 to 4.0 fixed lens. Let me say that again. That's a 25 millimeter to 400 millimeter at f2.8 to 4.0 lens. And it's a Leica lens, so it's super bright. 
Um, and it focuses fast with the Lumix depth through defocusing technology. So you get the long lens, long fast lens, and super fast focusing in this thing in one solid compact body. And if you add to all that the fact that this thing has a smartphone Wi-Fi app for remote control, if you got one kind of super package in one little package that you put in your bag, and you know this that that lens just blows me away at twenty five to four hundred. It's just uh, it's a long you know what they call a super zoom. Plus, it does all of that stuff in four K. That means you can shoot everything from portraits to photographing photographing lions in Africa from a safe distance and still get amazingly cool and sharp images, um, still images and video in 4K. Now you can learn all about this camera over on our All About the Gear show. Just enter FZ1000 in the search box on thisweekinphoto.com or you can head over to shop.panasonic.com or lumixlounge.com. Remember, Panasonic Lumix cameras where form meets function. And we'd like to thank Panasonic for their support of This Week in Photo. And here's a quick look at what's happening this week on the TWIP network. Over on All About the Gear, Doug K and Gordon Lang tackle the Nikon D5500. And on Street Focus, a chat about tent city photography with Christopher Ochicone. And on TWIP Weddings, Bruce Clark has a special interview with Italian album maker Graphy Studio. And on The Fix, a deep discussion about moving objects in Photoshop with Howard Pinsky. And finally, on Your Itinerary, Rob Knight chats with Bill Hertha. All that and more is happening this week on the TWIP Network. You can subscribe to any or all of our shows or our mailing list over at thisweekinphoto.com slash subscribe. All right, guys, story number one. Uh, a, so this is, this is the, the tag we put in the notes here. A revamped version of Flickr is released that went out last week. And then also Flickr has rolled out Uploader, and they spelled it without the E, obviously, of course. And uh, Camera Roll. So we talked about Flickr a while ago. We've been talking about them on and off, but there's a couple of angles to this particular story. The first angle is clearly Flickr still innovating. They're doing stuff, and they're, they're, they're still relevant. And if you ask Thomas Hawk, one of their... You know, Thomas Hawk is one of their biggest supporters and also biggest pains in the asses, I think, over at Flickr <laughs> because he tells it like it is and, you know, whether it's good or bad. So when they do good stuff, he waves the flag, and when they do bad stuff, he waves the flag. And this was a little bit of both. So, so first of all, in the new version of Flickr, they've got what they call, I'm reading from the press release here, they've got a unified search, they've got image recognition, which is really cool, by the way, we're going to talk about that. They've got search by color and a bunch more things. They've rolled out new mobile apps for Android and iOS as well. So first of all, I want to talk about these these new features. And you know, from one of the, the big things that I want to talk about is the fact that they're now allowing allowing you to download. First of all, they're giving you a thousand thousand gigs of space or a terabyte of space to upload into and they're allow, allowing you to pull all of your photos down, whereas in the past they were kind of held hostage unless you purchased a Flickr subscription or did jump through some other hoops. Now you can download all your photos easily. So, Brian Caparici, I want to start with you on this. So you've seen the news about Flickr. They're doing all these cool things. We're going to talk about their uploader in a second and their new camera roll feature. But the overarching thing, at least from my standpoint, is Flickr itself. Is it? Is it... Do you, from your standpoint, is it viable? I mean, is it has has the party moved on to 500px and Smug Mug and all those guys, or is it still happening over in the Flickrville? 
You know, it's funny because I think probably if you were to ask me that same question maybe a year ago, I would probably say that I feel like it's perhaps seen its better days. Yeah. Um, but it almost seems like in the last little while, I feel like more and more photographers that I run in the same circles with are coming to Flickr. And uh, I don't know if it's because of the image quality or their organizational structure or some of the new mobile work they've been doing on their website. Like a lot of that is it's just seeming to be a place where more and more photographers are going to. And then also just the storage and the, and the, the, the way that it displays the images seems to be nice. And so uh, I, I don't think I don't think it's seen its last leg. Yeah, it's, yeah, I have to agree with you and on all that. And it, but it kind of it kind of feels like. You know, Flickr, they're doing a lot of hard work over there. I know a couple of people there, and they're they're cranking. They're doing stuff, you know, yeah. and it's – these are smart people. I mean, this is Silicon Valley, and it's the same talent pool that fuels every other Silicon Valley company here is fueling Flickr, right? So yeah. they're doing really cool, innovative stuff, and they're funded, and they're motivated probably more than a lot of other companies are because they have something to prove. Rob Knight, what, do you, what about you? I'll pose the same question to you. Is Flickr still relevant to you? And when you see, like, a new version refresh like this with all these new features, does it tempt you to, to jump back in and do stuff? Well, not especially. Um, just to <clears> let you know how long it's been since I used Flickr, I had to reset my password because I had no idea what it was when mm -hmm. I went to look at it after seeing it in the show notes today. But when I do log in, I see lots of people posting lots of good pictures, and it doesn't seem like it's you know a wasteland at all. So yeah. um, just because I don't use it doesn't mean that I don't think other people do or should. Yeah, yeah, I agree. When I see things like this and I read through it, and I'm the same way. I mean, I hadn't forgotten my password, but when I went in, it's like it's been a while since I've been back and, you know, sort of poked around in there. Not because they're horrible or anything, it's just because there's so much other stuff going on. I mean, you have the Facebook, you got all these other networks that you have to deal with along with taking pictures and all this. Valerie, I know you're not on the leading edge of trying out new stuff. <laughs> no, no, but I'm not, and I'm not on Flickr, but it seems to be the the one source that people send you to. You know, whenever I, I meet new photographers, I mean, not new photographers, but photographers that I meet for the first time, uh, I ask them, okay, where can I see more of your work? Flickr is probably the number one link they will send me to, if they don't have a website, or both, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so far, maybe it's because of the kind of people I, I'm gonna, you know, the people that I'm checking out their work, I see good stuff. I don't see... See, for me, a few years ago... I never went into Flickr, but a few years ago, I thought Flickr people would just throw everything they have in there without without discriminating. It seems like people are a little more um, discriminating in the quality of work they throw in there, at least from what I see, uh, because I've seen some really awesome street photography on Flickr, yeah. and uh, and it seems to be the most common, common place people send me to. To check out yeah. that work. I think, I think the bottom line is we if you haven't if you haven't been back to Flickr been back to Flickr in a while like Rob Knight and you forgot your pot password go back in there kick the tires <laughs> again especially they're you know they're doing new things on there but let me let me read off these their press release um, a couple of things that they put in there so so this Flickr uploader for Mac and Windows lets you effortless, effortlessly upload hundreds of thousands of images from wherever you are storing them on your computer including your hard drive. Um, where else would you be storing them other than your hard drive? <laughs> well, that's a your hard drive, iPhoto, and external drive. That that means you can add about half a million more photos, depending on their size. Um, and then the next thing I want to talk about, so the camera roll, 
they've made it easy for you to access and view your entire catalog of images. Um, then organize your photos with seamless fluid gestures when using your mouse or touchscreen. You can view your entire history of photos by when and where they were taken or when they were uploaded. Then you can edit them in a flash thanks to their new bulk editing features. You can select the ones you want, quickly add titles, descriptions, other taglines, and metadata. So interesting. So, and I played with this. So I. I dove in and I played around with this and had it do some sorting on my existing library, and it's pretty cool. <laughs> so I went in there. I had a bunch of I had a bunch of photos of my cat in there and people and groups and all this stuff, and it sorted. It found all the cat photos and said, "Here are all your cat photos." And it went in and found these are all your architecture photos. These are all your photos of por portraits, and they were actually all portraits. It was kind of weird that it did that sorting. So I wanted to touch on that in this conversation, starting with you, Brian. So this is artificial intelligence, right? They're applying <laughs> artificial cloud-based intelligence to digital asset management. Is this the future of digital asset management? Like tagging, remember when they tried to put tagging on us? And it was like tagging, folders are gone. It's all about tags now. Now is it going to be just dump all your photos into one folder and we'll sort them for you? Would that work for you? Well, so I think it's really interesting. It's almost like, Frederick, if you remember the last time I was on TWIP, was just a few weeks ago, we had talked about Lightroom's new features and its face recognition and all that and the use case of that for a wedding and portrait photographer. And so, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, again, like, you know, taking it in the context of what I do for a living, which is wedding and portrait photography, is it all that useful? Probably not all that useful. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel like um, in the core of what this is representing, which is the artificial intelligence and the ability to pull out certain images and certain aspects of images and then categorize based on that, I feel like there's a ton of potential in that space. I feel like we're just getting to the sort of the, the, the tip of it, though. And I feel like as we dive deeper into it and explore more technology and more ways to use that technology, I think it's going to mean a lot of really exciting things for photographers. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, when I saw this, I thought about you, Valerie, specifically, because I know you you don't really like hanging on the computer. I'm not picking on you, but you just don't. You're a photographer's photographer. You like to be out taking photos and interacting with other carbon-based life forms and having fun out there, right? So <laughs> when, you see, when you see something like this, would could presum presumably free you from doing tedious sorting and all that stuff. Does it excite you as a... As a oh. Yeah, that, that's all good. Anything that's going to save me time. I mean, I remember years and years and years ago, I did some stock photography for iStock. And uh, you had to, I mean, the, just the, the tedious task of, you know, tagging everything was awful. And if they now have this same, um, you know, feature where you just throw your pictures in there and it will just tag them for you, oh, my gosh, I would, <laughs> I would have stuck with, with, uh, with uh, stock photography. Because yeah. that was that's the reason why I gave up. I'm like, oh, forget it. I don't have time for this. Yeah. Spend a yeah. Day I mean, you see people that are like really anal about, <clears throat> excuse me, anal about diving in and, Ugh. you know, their metadata just robots they go in. Like Rob Knight, for example. I'm sure Rob Knight is the metadata robot. As much as you travel, man, everything in your library is tagged, right? Not everything. Just my keepers. I don't bother to tag a bunch of stuff I'm yeah. not going to use. But um, I think like any other tool, if once we figure out how to use it, then you know it might seem a little more interesting. Yeah. You know, at, at first glance, things like facial facial recognition and then you know sorting by categories and things like that automatically, right out of the box. I don't I don't see it as something I'm going to use. But down the road, I might say, man, you know, I, I what about what did I do without this feature? You know. Right. And obviously, that's what people want. I mean, they wouldn't all you know 
that's what people are want, are asking for. Yeah, yeah. And over over on Thomas Hawk's blog, and we'll link to that um, in the post for this show. But he, uh, you know, along with calling Flickr out on a couple of other things, he pointed to the idea of why are people still using services like Apple Photos or whatever, where they're charging you a fee to put your stuff in the cloud when you can just use Flickr and put your stuff in the cloud using their you know, you can put up to one terabyte of stuff on Flickr. So I thought about that, and yeah, I don't know. When I think about it, first of all, I shudder a little bit because a, I want, I actually want to pay money. I want to pay money and keep companies accountable so that I can complain. I feel like if I don't pay, I can't complain. I feel like if I pay, <laughs> then then I'm a customer at that point instead of a user, right? Then I can complain. Uh, but the other thing is like having all my images up there in the cloud and relying on that as like, not a, I mean, you wouldn't, any sane person wouldn't use it as their single point of, of backup, but still like all that stuff in the cloud and it's accessible by the NSA and you know, stuff. It just makes me nervous. Brian, I mean, like, does it make you nervous? Am I just being paranoid that the cloud is good, but it just feels like I'm putting putting my my stuff in the front yard? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally the same as you though, Frederick. Like for me, I would much rather... A go with, and it's not not to say that you know Flickr isn't reputable because they're obviously a, a great company. But for me, it's like it's the simplicity of well, Apple Photos works, and so why not use it? I don't know. Like we, I know Apple, it's it's what you know they make my hardware, and so for me, it just makes sense. But I, I'm still in the same camp as you, where I, I really just use the cloud storage or any of those services like Apple Photos just as a means of getting photos, um, not just necessarily stuck on one machine. So if I want to view them on my iPhone, I can. Or if I want to view them while I'm at home, I can. Um, but for my professional work, you know, for me, hard drives are king. That's that's where I want to live for backups, for portability, and for all that kind of thing. I th I think um, cloud storage is just nice for convenience to be able to share and be a little bit more portable with it. But I would never rely on it as my as my source of backup. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. It's like it, backup and solving that whole backup issue issue is like chasing around that last P on the plate with a with a spoon it just keeps getting away because there's no one right answer for it i mean there's like and things keep changing like this shows up you know the Flickr solution shows up as another option we had like you mentioned we had apple photos and we talked about milio a while back and yeah. their whole goal is to democratize all your machines and make everything sync across everything and that's kind of apple's goal as well but it only works on the Mac, you know. Mm. So there's all these different things. Valerie, when you when you see something like this, you know, looking at what Flickr's doing with the one terabyte of storage and you know, there's their easy sorting or auto, artificial intelligence for sorting, does it are you paranoid like we are? <laughs> about I'm not. I'm not. And and you know, you said earlier that's probably not people's only source of backup, but I'm sure for the major, majority of people it is. Yeah. Because we're really picky as you know how many backups you know of how many backups we have, but most people aren't. That would probably be it. They have it on their computer and they have it on Flickr, and that's where they have their work. Yeah, yeah, but it's scary. Rob, how are you? What's your from a high level? Are you? What's your cloud slash on the ground strategy for backup? Well, I use I do use Apple Photos for. Some things. I, I don't really have one unified thing because my uh, my cell phone pictures are not necessarily something that I want to have on my computer, and I don't want all of my computer photos on my cell phone. So you know, I back up some of that stuff through uh, iCloud and um, using Lightroom Mobile. Um, that's how I get my quote real pictures onto my phone. I, I sync galleries with iPhone with uh, Lightroom Mobile, 
and then I got them on my phone. So um, I think as far as you know, Flickr coming along and coming out with something new or Mylio or anything else, I think a lot of people are going to just kind of stick with whichever one they subscribe to first because yeah. it's such a pain to switch. And, and you wouldn't want, I don't imagine that you'd want all your pictures in four or five different places online and then have it sync it all. And um, I think it's kind of like, you know, you need to grab every, they, these people need to grab their users' attention and get them on board as soon as possible. Yeah. I mean, the storage thing is one thing, but there, there's, you're right. There's this like, it's, once you're moving, it's hard to turn the ship. It's almost like buying lenses. Like once you once you buy into a camera manufacturer and you buy a bunch of lenses, you're kind of there without some stress for switching over to a different platform. No matter even if they have a giant carrot to get you over there, it's still going to take dynamite to blow you away from your your current solution. Sure. I don't know. And then the other thing was raw support. I don't even. I didn't. I was looking and I didn't see if they supported raw support or raw files because if they don't, and I'm I'm gonna. I'm going to assume they don't. I'm sure the TWIP army will correct me, but I'm going to assume that raw files aren't supported, which means this is not a backup solution at all. This is more of a distribution of your images, your JPEGs and PNGs or whatever across different areas. But for uh, for us and for the crowd that typically listens to This Week in Photo, many of us, I wouldn't say all of us, but many of us are shooting raw. So if raw doesn't factors it, factor into it, that's a huge, a huge flat tire in the whole solution. You know, Brian, Brian, you're shooting, when you shoot your weddings, are you shooting them in raw or JPEG? I shoot raw plus JPEG. So okay. I have the raw in case I need it, but I typically will just use the JPEG for proofs. Okay, for proofing. So you yeah. have a quick proof and you can run yeah, with it. exactly, yeah. Rob Knight, what about you? Are you shooting raw plus JPEG or just JPEG? I'm shooting both, yeah. Okay, like simultaneously. <laughs> right. I just <laughs> take, you know, just, I alternate. Just, no, I mean, yeah. I mean, you're not flipping <laughs> like sometimes you shoot raw and sometimes you shoot JPEG. You're shooting raw plus JPEG. No, it's raw plus JPEG. Yeah, and like Brian said, nine out of ten times I'm I'm using the JPEGs, um, especially if I'm using Wi-Fi and shooting an image to my phone to share yeah. it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, if I'm going to make a big print or something like that, I might process the raw and so you know get the the maximum image quality and and fine-tune it that way yeah yeah Valerie what about you raw I just shoot I just shoot raw and I don't Wi-Fi or anything so of course you don't <laughs> <laughs> you're like why what is that uh, my, my camera doesn't allow me to so. <laughs> yeah I and I'm I'm like uh, Brian and, and Rob I shoot raw plus JPEG for that very reason you brought up Rob because well, A, I want to, if I have a keeper that I want to dive into and do some editing on, I want all that data there for me. But at the same time, I want to be able to bring it over into my mobile device and tweak it in, in Lighten or Snapseed or whatever and share it out that way. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And, and you know, disk space is relatively cheap, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. All right, well, cool. All right, guys, before we uh, move on to story number two, I want to thank our second sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our good friends at Animoto. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by our newest sponsor, and that's our friends over at Animoto.com. In today's connected and visual world, video is really now a necessity. It's no longer an option. In fact, 
all of the social media platforms now allow video. People are using video as a powerful way to stand out from just static photos. Even Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg predicts that video will be the primary form of communication on Facebook within five years. And with video, you can better engage your customers and your friends. You can drive more traffic to your website. And you can boost your company or your personal image online by just using video. But learning how to use video and spending the money to create compelling videos is expensive. And it takes a long time to learn the tools necessary to create cool-looking videos. So that's where Animoto comes in. Animoto is a drag-and-drop video builder that gives you everything you need to produce professional videos in just minutes. You just need a logo and some photos or some video clips. You throw them in there, and boom, the thing crunches them and spits out an amazing-looking professional video. They've got 1,000 or over 1,000 commercially licensed songs for you to use, courtesy of Triple Scoop Music. Animoto has partnered with respected photographers, including Kelly Brown, Jerry Gihonis, Tamara Lackey, and more to provide you with exclusive professionally designed video styles. Plus, if you have your own logo, you can replace the Animoto branding with your own logo on there. Plus, you can create unlimited HD videos. You can share your videos on your website. You can throw them up on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, email. You can even download them and burn them to a DVD if you want to. Plus, they've got a cool Lightroom plugin, so you can you can shoot your images directly from Lightroom into Animoto and have it remix them just like that. No more exporting to a folder than uploading. You can just send them directly out to Animoto from your desktop. Animoto is really more than just a slideshow. They, they, they allow you to tell a story. You can choose the right music, set a cool mood, and really bring a series of images and video clips to life. And you can market your photography business with video with just a few clicks. You know more editing experience is needed. You can blend those video clips and photos seamlessly into one final piece, really without any extra work. And you can create your first video in about 10 minutes. You know, and this is about less than the time it takes for you to get your favorite caffeinated drink from your favorite barista. And Animoto has a special free trial. It's a no-risk free trial. You can try them for free and join the thousands of photographers who are already using Animoto to stand out from the crowd. Just head over to animoto.com slash twip and use the offer code TWIP and they'll knock 15% off an Animoto Pro account. Once again, that's animoto.com slash twip and use the offer code TWIP for 15% off. All right, story number two. So there's, and I didn't even know about this app. So it's called Camera 51. It's a popular Android app and it's now available on iOS. Now, I played with this. I was playing with this for quite a while this afternoon. Um, so essentially what it does, let me read this so I make sure I get it right. It says the camera app, camera 51 is, or the, yeah, camera app, camera 51 has become quite popular amongst Android users since launching in October of last year, scoring more than 1 million downloads in just a few months. And as the company promised at launch, the app has now been launched for iOS devices and the iTunes app store. iPhone users can now take advantage of the app's composition assisting features. If you're not sure how a scene should be framed, the app, the app will analyze it for you and suggest a composition that takes subjects and lines into consideration. The app will show an aim box on the screen, and, allow, and all you have to do is move the iPhone icon in the screen into the box, and bam, you've got yourself a photo that looks like, quote, a million bucks, Camera 51 says. So, 
I played with this and it and it, it does work. It looks like you guys are all smiling, right? <laughs> it looks like I mean it looks like it's doing some rule of thirds type stuff, like keeping it off center and all that, but it's it it works, you know, and it has a selfie mode where you can flip it around and it'll it will hold until you get the selfie exactly right and then it'll take the picture for you. So interesting, uh, Valerie. You're you're when you're in street photographer mode and you're out and about, you know, running around Europe and other places. Is this something that you would use? I know it's not targeted at you, right? But it's an interesting technology that could assist. What do you think? Oh, I, I think it's. I I looked at their video. I didn't play with the app, but they have a little cute little video. <laughs> yeah. To use it, and uh, I mean it's. It's nice. I just, I just think we have this technology. Why not use it? And, and this is second nature for us, how to compose. Um, but for most people who only take pictures with their phones, it isn't. And there are plenty. There are enough really, really bad pictures out there. So if anything can help, you know, us look at better pictures on Facebook and other social media. Hey, I'm all for it. Yeah, I don't know. The technology's scary. Uh, Rob, when I, when I saw this, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking, the feeling of foreboding that I had was kind of like what an Uber driver might feel reading an article about Google self-driving cars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, that's really cool. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, it's not threatening. I mean, it's, it's come on, it's, it is. It is kind of threatening. How to see? It's only going to teach them how to. To position their camera. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's really just teaching people how to what the rule of thirds looks yeah, like. Yeah, I think that's mostly I mean, what it I, is. I, I, I played around with it for a few minutes, and it, in almost every case, it put that's whatever right. I decided the subject was on one, you know, intersection of a third. Right. And, uh, and the the interesting part was pointing it at my computer monitor, filling the frame with the computer monitor on pictures that I had taken that I really liked, and then <laughs> other things like the the you stock picture. Of Yosemite. How would you fix this, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and just to see what it did, and it, and it was, it was absolutely off of everything that I had decided. So see, uh, we may learn something. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, right, right. I, I've got I a lot of have like presets in there where you can say, yeah, I want to shoot, I want to shoot like Rob Knight. So you press a button. And <laughs> That's the thing. Who, who decides? Who decides what the the good photo is, right? I mean, right. is it? It's just based on. Sort of the uh, the taste of the time, I guess. I, I don't know. And the whole point of knowing those rules is so that we can make decisions to break them to tell the story we want to tell. So um, I wonder what happens if you insist on putting your your subject in the middle. <laughs> is it just going to fight with you and it's, it's not going to let you press the button? It'll, it'll act it'll act like your GPS system does in the car when you don't go where it says to go. Yeah, Recalculating, recalculating, <laughs> or or it'll actually crop it square so that even though you put it in the middle, it'll actually push it off to the side. Exactly, exactly. Brian, when you saw this, I mean, did it did it pique your interest at all? Did it scare you, or were you like, oh, it's another gimmick? Oh well, Frederick, I'm gonna ditch all my Fuji gear and I'm just gonna use my iPhone from now on for weddings and portraits. I mean, that's that's all that I need. No, okay, so so he, here's my thought. Um, the the very core of what this is is it interesting technology yes i think it's pretty it's pretty cool but um at the core of it it's calculations it's it's mm -hmm. making imagery via mathematical calculations because that's all a phone can do a phone cannot see creatively i mean right we're talking about machines and zeros and ones and yes mm -hmm. it can mathematically say this is where the horizon line should go but 
photography is not just about mathematical calculations. There's vision, creativity, and so much more that goes into it. And so as much as it might be able to sort of mathematically make what it would consider a, what, what do they say, a million-dollar photo? <laughs> you know? Right. That, yeah. that, that's, that's as far as it goes, is yes, it will give you the rule of thirds, or yes, it will give you leading lines. But that's it, you know, and 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 that that does not make a good photographer. We all know that, and yeah. I think I mean I mean I'm I'm almost even wonder. And again, I do, I'm not aware of the app on the Android uh, platform because I'm an iPhone user. Um, but I almost wonder just like in terms of the use case or or who the, who the market is for this because at least people that I know, the average consumer, like if you kind of break it up, the average consumer that takes pictures, they're taking pictures and they're using them for purposes like your Instagram, your Twitter, your Facebook, your Flickr, things like that. They're taking the photo in the native app, like they're using the Instagram app to take the photo. Um, if you if you are using it for photographic purposes to improve your photography, there's a good chance you're not shooting with an iPhone, like you're shooting with a mirrorless camera or an SLR or whatever it is. So I'm just wondering who the target client is for it. At least I, I can't quite come to terms with who that would be. I'm I'm looking at it like kind of like Lytro. You know, with their with their light field technology, it allows you to shoot now and then yeah, yeah. focus later. And then, I, I was, as I sat back and I thought about this, I was thinking, okay, so we've got program mode, and and you know, some of these mirrorless cameras have all these other crazy modes on there that will just essentially take over for you and let you do all kinds of cool things. So we've got that. So we really have to think about that aspect of it. We've got focus later technology, a la light field with Lytro, so we don't have to worry about focusing, and We've got AI composition help with these guys that now it will even tell us if the photo's wrong. You know, and then when we take the photo, we've got Flickr that will automatically sort the photos for us <laughs> on the back end. I'm thinking, like, when will there no longer be need be a need for a photographer, right? I mean, at some point, you know, if you read up on like the singularity and you know, when when microprocessing speeds surpass human thought and all this stuff it, it it starts these kinds of things point in that direction like at some point you'll be able to like brian i could see a future when some advanced drones are out there i could just deploy 12 drones to shoot the wedding and say okay drone number one you're on bride and groom drone number two you're on pickup shots drone number three i need exteriors whatever <laughs> and just set them free and let them do the job can that brian can you see that happening in the future well, I'll tell you, I've been, I've photographed some weddings where I'd prefer to have drones around than <laughs> all the videographers that are chasing around and getting in my shots. So yeah, yeah. that may not be a bad thing. You know? uh, no, again, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, totally. Technically, mathematically, yes. Can you get the shot? Can you direct it? Can you point it? Can you autofocus it? Can you compose it? Potentially, you can do that all technically the right way. But uh, you know, that a technical, a technically perfect photograph is not necessarily a perfect photograph. We know that. Look at the, the typical histogram in any one of the shots that, that we all make all the time. The histogram is not always perfect, right. yet computers will try and make it perfect. Um, that's, that's you know in my opinion, a quick example of what that looks like. I mean, even as something as automatic as aperture priority mode or program mode, we still, as the photographer, will come in and use exposure compensation to fix what the computer isn't doing correctly. So that that's just a much simpler case of what what I think this sort of technology will lead us to. Yeah. I don't know. This reminds me, and Rob, I want to have you chime in on this too. This reminds me of uh, when I was growing up, my dad was, uh, he worked for ABC in Chicago, WLS-TV in Chicago, and he was chief engineer. He was the guy in charge of all the cameras and all that stuff. 
And I remember him telling me, yeah, I put a bunch of people out of work today because we installed robots to operate the cameras. <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, oh, is history repeating itself with this AI stuff? You know, now we're going to... Could it be possible that we're going to put an entire, you know, group of image makers or at least make them less necessary with, with technologies like this? It's only 2015 and we're seeing this stuff. What's going to happen in 2020, you know? Yeah, Rob, what do you I, think? I think there's a big difference between computers that can keep a, a newscaster in the frame. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a big, there's a big difference in that and someone... Uh, who captures, you know, a travel photo or a street photo or a wedding photo that really, you know, captures emotion and has creativity and, like Brian said, you know, vision and all these things that don't have anything to do with the math of it. And, I mean, look at Cartier-Bresson's pictures, right? Mm -hmm. uh, half of them are out of focus and, you know, blurry and everything else, but it's the moment that, that makes the biggest difference. So, you know, and it, maybe the, uh, the moment computer comes out next year, I don't know. But. <laughs> I don't know. And, and don't who know. said what's the most important part uh, of the, oh, what is it? What's the most important part of the camera is the 12 inches behind it? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. not how it, that's not exactly how it goes. Something like that. You know what yeah. I mean. Something like that. And, but your brain, uh, and yeah, your gray matter is the most important. Will, I mean, the machines are never going to have vision, and uh, that's that. I don't know. You guys, you know, you you guys sound like the old dude on uh, on Jurassic Park before the, before the dinosaurs broke loose. You know. I mean, I, <laughs> you know I've seen Terminator. On. This is a perfectly I, safe park. Whatever. I, you know. <laughs> I get it. I've seen the Terminator, and I I understand. But those uh, autonomous walking robots scare me a lot more than than pictures that do or uh, cameras that do automatic. You know, yeah, basically you're, you're thinking of things separately. <laughs> These things will merge together, and you'll have autom autonomous walking robots that are taking Brian's job. <laughs> but look at it, too. I mean, look at, um, you know how kids' portraits used to be? You used to go to the, I don't know, Walmart or JCPenney or whatever Roland those Mills. stores where it'd be Roland somebody who, who was just trained to take a portrait. I mean, everything was set up for them. All they really had to do was press the button. And maybe make you know make the kid smile, right. but everything else was automated already. I mean, the, everything was set. They didn't have to have any any skills really as portrait photographers. Anybody could do that. So what's the difference? And then that, so that was the poor quality portrait we we had 30 years ago versus the beautiful you know portraits we have now. Um, you know because people want something better. But 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 the photographers who did those portraits and those those cheesy portraits back then could not deliver the type of portraiture that that Brian does. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, it's definitely something to watch. But I, I'm telling you, I look at all this stuff and I look at because we were, we report all this stuff on Twip, so I see like patterns in the chaos and you know vectors. And I was I'm like. Okay, so we've got Lytro, we've got DJI, we've got 3D Robotics, you know, with their drones, we've got Panasonic Lumix with doing crazy things with cameras and Fuji and all these guys. Everybody's, it's like these pockets of innovation that are doing insanely cool things that are slowly converging. <laughs> that are slowly converging. And our kids' kids are going to be out there, you know, with some some crazy stuff, completely new career fields. and I mean, if you think about it, like even the stuff that we're doing today, we're all in different parts of the world, you know, gathered together in a video conference recording something that wasn't possible just five years ago. You know, just was not possible. So five years from now, 
where are things going to be? What are what's going to be happening that's not possible through the combination of these little budding technologies that we see today, like what Camera 51 is doing? So I don't know. Call me a conspiracy theorist if you will, but I'll be the old man on the porch, Rob Knight, going. Rob Knight, I told you. Cameron <laughs> <laughs> yeah, robot walks by on the way to shoot a wedding. They, yeah, ah. cool. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's right. I'll take a picture of you and keep going. You'll be like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Um, well, we talked about this is future-facing stuff. Let's talk about past-facing stuff. Unfortunately, this next story is about Kodak. So, one of our listeners, Jim Haywood, shared an interesting article. Uh, with the TWIP army, us and all of our listeners, it takes a it basically there was a video on this page. It takes a clo- closer look. It's like a five-minute documentary. It takes a closer look at the fall of Kodak and how they're. I mean, they're not really clinging to the future of of film, but they're they're kind of reinventing themselves. And you'd be surprised at some of the things that the new Kodak is involved in. I mean, everything from food to touchscreens and things like that. But I wanted to talk about it on this show because, you know, I want to just get you, get a, get a touch point on you. First of all, like taken from Brian's standpoint, Brian, have you ever shot film before in your entire life? Perhaps when I was like 10 years old on a vacation to Florida, my parents had one. Oh my god! Or maybe one of maybe one of those disposable ones that you would bring into like the lab and yeah, just give them the camera and they would develop the whole thing. I, so no, you, you've I, never taken a roll of 35 millimeter film and loaded it into a camera? Honestly, Frederick, I I, I sometimes I wish I wish that I had and I wish that I that I I did even now. Um, but no, I mean, I started into photography in 2006, and at that point we were we were you know too far in, and yeah. I've never really had a need or personally I've never felt a a desire to go into it. I mean, I shoot with my Fuji gear and I love my Fuji stuff, and I believe in the purest photography mentality as much as you know the next guy. But for me, you know, I'm I'm a digital guy. I grew up you know in the in the 90s and the 2000s, so that's that's where I live, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. That and that's that that's a perfect illustration of Kodak. You know what happened to Kodak? This is what happened to Kodak. They and I think they could have they could have been a player. You know, if you watch that video, they they had several opportunities to engage and and be the Fuji. They could there could have been we could have all been shooting Kodak cameras today and talking about how awesome they are, but this is a failure to, to pay attention to what's happening in the zeitgeist of a particular vertical, and, you know, this is the result. Rob Knight, what about you? I mean, I have a feeling you have shot film once or twice. I shot film for about five minutes. I, five I minutes. got into photography as as just a traveler. You know, I was I had another job, and, and I, um, I think it was the uh, actually the Kodak APS camera, the advanced photo system, yeah. with a little drop-in film, and I would, you know, change change the role for, you know, color to black and white and that kind of stuff, but I, I didn't shoot 35-millimeter film until I was in uh, photography school. Wow. So I'm yeah. I'm all digital pretty much, too. All digital all the time. And Valerie, what about you? Any no, film I, I, started, I started with film, and, and I started as a portrait photographer, so Ooh. I went through quite a few roles, and I'm going back to film, too. Um, going to get myself a nice vintage little camera this year. You're, and, you're copying uh, Doug K. That's what no, Doug K. No, no, no. I actually, I, I wanted to do this for quite a bit longer. I mean, most of my street photographer friends are are shooting film now, and I have more and more film cameras coming on workshops, um, and uh, and sometimes they bring both. 
But but why, you know, a that's... lot of my friends, and it's not it's not the the film versus digital <laughs> thing. It's just that it's just to go back to setting limitations and and working on specific projects using film versus digital. Where I, I applaud that, and I agree. I mean, I've shot thousands and thousands and thousands of rolls yeah. of film in my career, um, but. That's over now. I mean, it's not over because I don't. I don't want the, the the pitchforks and you know coming out and the torches and all that. Yeah, it's, be I don't think it's over, but <laughs> but from the standpoint of you know, it's like like Brian saying that there's an easier way to do things, and I feel like film is awesome, and I'm still nostalgic about film. I still have undeveloped film that I need to process. Um, but I look at it, and I'm like, okay, when people are experimenting or shooting it now like they come on your workshops Valerie are they sh they're shooting it because they want to you're saying they want to self-constrain but can't they self-constrain with digital can't they just say you know what I'm only going to shoot 36 shots today that's it you know and you, you could you could it, you're just not going to get the same rush and the same it's completely different and I completely respect that I mean it's um and same with me when I do get um when I have time and I get a, a film little rangefinder. I'm just going to go out, you know, on the Saturday morning, shoot 36 exposure, and the rest of the time I'm still going to use my Fuji gear. You know, it, it's not a replacement. It's what, Why do people go out with, you know, lens baby composers or uh, or shoot with just one specific focal length? You know, that is just it's to spice things up too a little bit. You know, give yourself a challenge. Yeah. And uh, and it's we're all in this to have fun, I hope. Yeah. And uh, and I think it's one way of uh, getting out and having different kind of fun. Where do you fall on that, Rob? Is is film a hobby within a hobby now, or is it you know is it is it an exercising constraint like Valerie says? I think hobby within a hobby is a more mm -hmm. sort of uh, accurate description of it because I I do um, exercises on my workshops with okay we're going to shoot a limited number of pictures and you're going to turn off your auto review mm. so it's it's that same kind of restraint you know constraint without spending money every time you trip the shutter you know yeah. um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with film I'm I'm actually waiting for my my Bronica 120 camera to get um, the focus was off on it a little bit because I I like the idea of going to some of the places I go to shoot landscapes. And taking this medium format film, and um, you know, th there's something to that. I have a picture of my granddad that I made with that Bronica. That's and he passed away two years ago. So I have this. It's a real thing. I can show you the negative. You know what I mean? And make a print from that. And it's there's there's something different about that for sure. Yeah, and like Doug K. Doug K. said on the episode of All About the Gear we recorded about his experiences shooting film. The the one of the unexpected liberating aspects of shooting film was you don't have to worry about any of this cloud backup crap that we've been talking about because <laughs> you have a negative and that's it you're done you know you make as many prints as you want and as long as you safety safely store that negative you're 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 backed up. Doug yeah. actually I, said to me that the best part is that after the photo walk you just hit the bar. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you don't need to go look okay. at your pictures. That's right. <laughs> I was in the, the music recording studio um, a couple of years ago, and the producer was talking about how he wanted to have it mixed down onto tape. And everything we recorded was digital, and it was all into Pro Tools. But then the engineer put it all on two-inch tape, and then from the tape went back into the computer even to master it. And he said, you know, until you put it on that tape, it's just theoretical. It's just ones mm -hmm. and zeros. And, and I thought, well, that's kind of a... 
yeah, okay, that's I, I get it. But then here you can hear the difference. Hmm. You know, so I think in some ways with film, it's I, that it kind of makes me think of that. You know, it's and digital photography is all theoretical, and we can change it an infinite number of times. We can edit the raw file a million times and get a million different pictures. But when you have a negative, that's a thing that you made. You know, yeah. and it's a little bit different. Yeah, everything's a everything's a balance, right? Because on the digital side, yeah, you're right. You have it's zeros and ones, but you have relatively infinite flexibility in what you can do with those zeros and ones. But albeit you're going to lose some of the nuances that would be present or present in analog. But on the analog side, you know, you have that sort of romance and linearness and kind of that that silky feel of film. Do you guys think, Brian? I want to have you chime in this. Do you think that we're ever going to see a resurgence of film. I was thinking about you when I was reading the story. I was like, okay, on, a, on the wedding standpoint, could you introduce film into your product lineup as a top-tier sort of elitist kind of offering? Like, hey, we shoot digital like everybody else, but if you want us to shoot film and you believe in the romance of film, we'll shoot film, but it's going to cost you an extra 10 grand. Would you do something like that? Okay, so so you said earlier <laughs> something about pitchforks, um, and I'm just I'm just wondering, I guess, to what extent do you want to encourage them to come at us? But I know. Um, okay, so my opinion of it, and and certainly I I, uh, I have some thoughts on on equipment and and how I actually believe that equipment can inspire us to 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 shoot differently and to see differently, and so certainly I can see the nostalgia that some photographers get out of shooting film. Do I think that it has a place in a professional setting for like a client, you know, an end client use? Honestly, you know who cares about film? We care about film, the photographers. Our right. clients are going to get a beautiful album. Our clients are going to get a beautiful print. Whether I make that on my iPhone or whether I make it with a film camera, as long as it's beautiful for them, that's what they want. So could I get a client to pay me more for, you know, me shooting a, a, a roll of film? I don't believe so. That being said, again, to sort of you know, calm down the pitchforks coming at us right now at this very moment, there are many photographers that I know personally that have created incredible businesses because they shoot film and their clients hire them for the look that they get. Yeah. That being said, could they get a similar look and attract similar clients by shooting digital and using things like you know, Visco or whatever like that? Perhaps, but... Pitchforks go away. Uh, you know th 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 that being said, where I think it's really exciting, and this is something I've talked at length about this when I made my switch over to Fuji. Um, the Fuji equipment, and I know Valerie, you photograph with Fuji as well. Um, for me, because of its uh, its its function, its form, the way that it is, um, the sort of speed of it, the mechanical nature of it, it actually forced me to slow down as a photographer, mm -hmm. and my photography has improved significantly. Since I switched over to Fuji and I see differently, I shoot differently, I, I act differently with my camera, and it has most definitely, without a, without a shadow of a doubt, inspired a new style of photography in me. And so for anyone that says that a camera, it's not about the gear or it's not, it's not I mean, well, Frederick, you have a show called All About the Gear, but for anyone that says it's not about the gear and that, that the equipment doesn't matter, I would just challenge them to say that some equipment will inspire you to be different with that equipment. And so in that case, does that not help you? So yeah. film, that could be film for some people. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I do lean into that, that argument of, well, some people use film for the nostalgia. And hey, if it inspires them to shoot differently, then I think without a question, the film helps them be a better photographer in their own right. Yeah. yeah, yeah I agree. Totally. Very totally. well said. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, yeah, it's... It, 
we're, I, I don't know. I, I think it's it, maybe it's a it's it's kind of a symptom of the career field of photographer or image maker, or maybe it's just human. You know that we we sort of get up in arms about what we're using, like our tools, our workflow, our RAW plus versus JPEG, Mac versus <laughs> Windows, Nikon versus Canon versus Panasonic versus Fuji versus Olympus. You know, whatever you choose to to and to shoot your particular genre of photography, it's always going to be the best, right? And poo-poo on everybody else. That's it's typically what we do. And then now we're seeing this latest chapter, which is weird because it's like coming full circle again. It's like films coming back in, and now it's like, oh, you shoot film? No. Or you don't shoot film, or you suck. You know, so it's always <laughs> there's, always, <laughs> there's always something. There's always something, which keeps this this industry interesting. But I don't I don't think it will ever never say never but i don't see in the foreseeable future film coming back you know and you know doing a walking dead kind of thing and coming back and uh taking over the zeitgeist of of digital photography and and uh getting back to the glory that it was when kodak was present so to bring this this story full circle kodak uh rob i'm gonna throw it to you first Kodak, you know, like we said in the beginning, made some missteps and now they've been Kodaked, right? They're out of the, they're on, not even on the sidelines anymore. They're out of the game completely, not even yep. in the parking lot. What could they have done differently to have remained viable? Like what, what specifically do you think they could have done? Well, it was interesting reading that article because it, it said basically they invented most of the processes that started digital photography yep. and they figured, well, you know, one day we'll do that. But instead of following that path, they decided to get into desktop printing instead. And they dropped the ball and didn't make it in desktop printing, and then they didn't have any money to get back into digital imaging. Right. So, you know, that guy wakes up in cold sweats at night that made that decision, like, not cameras, not digital cameras. We'll go for printing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. That guy said oops and went and took a job at Fuji. So he's, like, he's like, for my next trick, I'm going to make this awesome. <laughs> Unbelievable, yeah. So, I mean, imagine if they had taken what they know about film and just applied that to that uh, to digital sensors from day one and kept going. I mean, you know, the stuff, like like you said, like Fuji's doing with the non-bear array and all that, mm -hmm. um, how much further could Kodak have taken that if they had put their minds to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, because Kodak at one point Kodak was and maybe still is in many ways synonymous with photography, right? Kodak Moment, right. remember all that mm -hmm. stuff? So, yeah. yeah, I still see Kodak Moment signs at different landmarks around the United States. You're like, hey, here's a Kodak Moment spot. It's still there. You know, it's weird. Yeah. Um, talking about film photography, in June I will be recording a film is not dead special on oh, Street Focus cool. with a panel of four photographers from four different countries. So it's probably going to be a two-part episode. Excellent. I think I will have to tune in and listen to that. Very you good. should. Not <laughs> Don't dead. you listen to all my episodes? One or two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, before we uh, move on with the show, I want to thank another sponsor for this episode of This Week in Photo, and that's our good friends at FreshBooks.com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use invoicing solution that's helping freelancers and small business owners get organized and save time invoicing. You can try FreshBooks for free. Just head over to freshbooks.com twip and enter twip in the how did you hear about us section when you sign up. And as I've said on This Week in Photo before, 
we use FreshBooks as the back end to basically run most of the stuff behind the scenes on this business to keep the lights on and to keep everybody happy. Because as we all know, as creative professionals, we're not necessarily focused on capturing our income, expenses, and tracking billable time and all that. And I think the reason that we don't capture all of those things is simple. It's boring. We're creatives. We like fun stuff. We like Photoshop and Lightroom and you know all these other cool things that let us express that side of our brain. And thankfully, FreshBook offers us as small business owners a way to quickly and easily keep track of our time and money without disrupting our workflow or you know, sort of messing with our creative juices. With FreshBooks, you can invoice clients. It's easy. You can do it in seconds. And expenses can be automatically imported so that you don't have to lift a finger. You're just doing the stuff on the back end while you do other cool stuff. You can even track billable time as easy as starting a timer on your, on your mobile phone. You can whip up business reports. You can stay on top of your income, expenses, and tax time is coming up. So with a couple of clicks, you can generate reports for your CPA or your accountant so that you're staying out of trouble. So grab some popcorn, learn how to fresh books by watching some of their free getting started webinars. I'm a big fan of webinars and they've got some excellent ones online for you to check out. Once again, if you want to check FreshBooks out, you can just head over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP, enter the code This Week in Photo or TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section to start your free 30-day trial. All you need is an email address to, uh, to try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. Just go over to freshbooks.com slash TWIP and enter TWIP in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And we want to thank FreshBooks for their support of This Week in Photo. All right, before we continue, uh, to, we're going to do an interview insert here. So this is about Brooks Institute. Um, I'm read the blurb that we put in the notes here. So Brooks Institute is one of the oldest and most pre prestigious photography schools in the nation, and I sit on the board of trustees for the school. Um, and uh, last week the school announced that ownership had changed hands. So I took the opportunity to sit down with the school's recently appointed president, Dr. Tim Gramling. He and I discussed the ramifications of this ownership change as well as the overall state of Brooks Institute as it faces this ongoing onslaught of on and offline competition from the Lindas and the Kelbys and the Creative Lives and all those guys. What does a school that is primarily brick and mortar like Brooks Institute do to uh, to stave off that attack. So give a listen to this interview. Hey folks, welcome back to another TWIP interview. Today I've got the pleasure of sitting with Dr. Tim Gramling. He's the president of Brooks Institute down in Ventura, California. Brooks has been around for a long time and is known as one of the most prestigious schools out there for photographers and videographers and visual journalists and graphic designers. So those kinds of pedigrees, If you, typically if you have a degree from Brooks, you can probably get in most places that are looking for those kinds of skill sets. So Tim joined Brooks, took over the presidency several months ago and has been, you know, kicking some major butt over there since then. Um, some big news happened this week. So I invited Dr. Gramling to come on the show and talk about the the big news and also you know a look into the past present and future perhaps of where brooks might go so tim gramling welcome to this week in photo frederick thank you very much hey it's uh it's a pleasure to have you on sir so let's let's dive into this so first full disclosure 
I sit on the board at Brooks. So, you know, you and I have met many times before. We've chatted and, you know, all that stuff. So I kind of know the answers to the questions that I'm asking you. <laughs> but I'm going to ask them again for the benefit of the TWIP audience to have you you answer in your own words. So let's let's just start with you. So you're when you join the school, you know, you you join so you are self-admittedly not a photographer per se. You can take pictures, but you're not a photographer. So tell me about your pedigree and you know your qualifications for coming into an institution like Brooks and taking over. Okay, sure. So my uh, career started about 30 years ago. I began after graduating from Harvard with a degree in computer science in telecommunications. And since then, I spent the first half of my career in a number of rotations in big corporations, IBM, First Boston Corporation, Sprint, American Express. I transitioned into higher education a little less than 15 years ago. I started off as an adjunct faculty member teaching computer information systems and design courses at a large community college, and then transitioned into a series of assignments, first as a program chair in academics, and then a number of operational uh, roles in a couple of university systems, DeVry University, then Colorado Technical University. What got me excited about Brooks is the connection to the arts. I am myself a classically trained pianist. I've been playing the piano now for a little short of 40 years and have been connected with the arts community as a presenting sponsor myself for a long time. My son's in the arts, my brother's in the arts. And so having an opportunity to participate in higher ed, which I love, in the arts, is what really drew me to Brooks Institute. I love that. I love that. And then you're a, you're a Harvard graduate as well, correct? That is correct. You know, and I got to tell you, it was when we were before you came on and I was sort of looking at your your resume, me and the board were looking at your resume. Um, I was I was a little intimidated. I got to be honest. <laughs> oh, well, there's, there's no need for that. So, I mean... <laughs> but come on. So to, you know, looking at your pedigree, it's OK. Here's this Harvard graduate. Uh, he is a classically trained pianist, as you say, for 40 some odd years you've been playing. Um, you are a helicopter pilot, an accomplished helicopter pilot. And you're running the school and doing all these other things. Plus, you're a, a family man, a dad, a granddad, all this other stuff going on. So that's intimidating, sir. Come on. <laughs> oh, well, the best way to look at that is it just makes a person more well-rounded, yeah. uh, which is very important for the assignment at Brooks, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the the the, the topic at hand, and that's the transfer of ownership uh, from one owner to the next owner. So take me through that. Why why a transfer of ownership and you know what are the pluses and minuses around that? Oh, sure. So Career Education Corporation has owned Brooks Institute going back to 1999, so for quite some time, mm -hmm. and came to a conclusion that for investing in its future, it will be best to put Brooks up for sale, to find an owner that could invest more effectively than Career Ed could. Uh, we found that owner in Green Planet which has themselves been involved in education from a different perspective. In particular, they are a global logistics solutions provider that works predominantly with helping international students find places in the United States to go to school and helping schools increase their international presence offshore, particularly in uh, the Asian subcontinent. And so when we looked at this opportunity and came to terms with the purchase agreement signed a little while ago, a few weeks back, it looked to be a wonderful opportunity for Brooks to be able to grow into the future, to invest in areas, and in particular for Green Planet, they see growth in the visual arts 
especially when you look at countries like China and Korea and India, there is a need for the visual arts there that is much larger than what the capacity is in those countries to fill. And that's where Brooks comes in. Love that. Love that. So does that mean that we're going to see an influx of uh, folks from China or for the Asian subcontinent into Brooks proper in Ventura? Yeah, I believe we'll see a gradual increase. We have a significant number of international students at Brooks now. Mm -hmm. And in Brooks' past in history, we've served the international community very well. So certainly there'll be a great opportunity to partner internationally, but there also will be some expansion of our national footprint in cities where we have done very well in the past, like New York, Chicago, Denver, Portland, Oregon, Philadelphia. Uh, you'll see Brooks presence also expanding in those cities. Love that. Love that. So, so Tim, when you, when you took over the, the presidency at the school, you know, leading up to this, this, you know, and I, I'm hesitant to call it an acquisition. It's more of a, it feels like more of a change of ownership. So, so from day one up till now, what have been some of the major challenges that you as a president have taken on? In other words, what keeps you up at night? The major things for me are the transition that Brooks and many schools like us have to make mm -hmm. in the current environment. Yep. The current environment, education, it, it's been said that education serves two purposes. One is to make better citizens. The other is to make better or more prepared workers. And there's a line that higher education uh, institutions have to walk there where certainly there's an emphasis and a concern that folks can get employed after they graduate. But there's also a concern that we need to train folks not just to be able to use techniques that work in today's environment, but to be lifelong learners, that they can understand and learn how to be good citizens, how to continue to grow, how to continue to change and adjust as technology adjusts and our society continues to advance. Yeah. So that's the primary challenge, I believe, that we faced in the past. Love it. And, and what steps are you taking to kind of jump over that hurdle? So there's a couple things that we have really been focused on. Mm -hmm. We have a group of program advisory boards that give us counsel on how we can stay current and what trends are coming forward from a technology standpoint and from a technique standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we do to deal with that challenge is to stay connected there. The other part of what we do is we're expanding, in particular, our presence in the Brooks Extension a Brooks Extension is an adjunct part of Brooks that focuses on workshops. We do a number of them in a variety of areas, some of which range from high, teaching high school students techniques all the way up to teaching high school teachers and community college teachers techniques and the latest in photography, in addition to doing some training for continuing education of working pros, whether in Lightroom or digital asset management or similar topics. And so that has predominantly been a ground-based set of workshops today through Brooks Extension that we're looking to expand into an online type of format in the near future. I love that. And that's a perfect segue to my next question. So, you know, I, I throw around the term you know, bricks versus browsers a lot, right? So we have the idea, or there's a, it's a crowded field in the, the distance learning from a photography standpoint. We've got the Lindas out there, Creative Live, um, Kelby Training, it, the list goes on and on, you know, of, of these resources that people can go to now. So tell me a little bit about your mindset around managing this brick entity, you know, per se, even with the, with the extension piece that's growing on with this growing onslaught of people that can sit at home and just click and learn. Absolutely. There is a need, I think, for both. 
uh, bricks and browsers, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, the need for bricks is important because, in particular, the visual arts, whether it's photography, film, or the design-oriented arts of graphic design, as well as visual journalism, which is kind of a cross-functional discipline, are fundamentally hands-on. And there are some things that you can accomplish by showing someone in person that you cannot accomplish at a distance today. Right. Yeah. So certainly one of the things we believe is that there is a balance and a need for both of those platforms. But clearly there's also a reach that one gathers through browsers. And so part of where I see a real interest, especially among enthusiasts in photography, is technology has gotten to a point where it can replace some of what used to only be possible with a professional. Yeah. I can remember the 35 millimeter camera platform from some years ago where all the knobs and buttons and things you had to know about largely have been automated in some of these digital platforms today. So that means that we have to continue to adjust. And I think Brooks has the capability to continue to adjust because there's still a level of professionalism that is needed in visual arts. It's not just about the technology. It's about a visual aesthetic. It's about making choices about what's in the frame and what's not in the frame. And that's the type of thing that I think Brooks can continue to play a role in, whether it's in browsers or in bricks. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Great answer. And yeah, the regardless of the direction that the school goes in, the Brooks brand is a strong brand. You know, I, I tell people that it's kind of like the Harvard of, uh, of the digital photography or the photography or image making creative space, right? You go to, you have Brooks on your resume as part of your education and it opens certain doors, right? So versus having, okay, I, I went through these courses online and I learned that. It's good that you have that knowledge and you can build a portfolio, but having Brooks means that you, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, a, diff it's a different kind of nuance, I think. Um, so, okay, just a couple of more questions and I'll let you go. I know you've got, you're busy running the school and the presidency there. Um, so this change, this change of ownership, what is this like specifically on, you know, on the ground level for the day-to-day -day Brooks student that walks in there and goes into the soundstage and they're, they're working, taking their equipment out? What does it mean for that person? You know, that learner that's coming in day-to-day, -day, feet on the street into Brooks proper, what does it mean to them? That's a very good question. So for students, there will be virtually no major changes to the way they engage with us. The programs are not changing. The courses we teach are not changing. The building isn't changing and so forth. And so really what the ownership change will do is it will allow us to invest. So as we get into the months ahead, well, students will start to see us investing in different ways in the campus environment that will be helpful to them, both in terms of the equipment that they can use and that we demonstrate on, as well as the grounds themselves. So for students, that's the primary change that that will see, uh, that they will see rather. For faculty, same thing. No major changes to certainly their day-to-day -day experience with students. Classes are starting on Monday. They will continue to run as they have. And so what we'll see changing is the level of investment that this owner will be able to put into Brooks. So that's how I would characterize the things people will see. Some of the back-end systems, of course, will change as we migrate off of the previous organization into the Green Planet platforms. And so there'll be some back-end systems that will change. But the experience folks have that will remain and continue to improve. That's great. That's that's great news. Um, so speaking of that improvement, the last question is there, you know, Brooks has typically had 
dual addresses, right? So Vin Brooks is in Ventura, Brooks is in Santa Barbara. Most people, myself included, was I was introduced to Brooks many, many, or several decades ago when it was a, a Santa Barbara, primarily a Santa Barbara-based entity. What's the status of that? You know, is it, you know, what from the president down, you know, what's going on with that, with the Ventura versus the Santa Barbara presences for Brooks? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that so I can clarify how we're handling. So we are exiting the Santa Barbara location. It's an organized process that we're still several months away from completing. Mm -hmm. And we are serving students there, so a number of our staff members go back and forth. What we are planning to do as we get into 2016 is having all of our operations out of the Ventura campus. As you know, this is a large multi-acre site with a great deal of facilities for both photography studios as well as a number of sound stages, some of which are some of the largest you'll find in the Los Angeles metro area that will allow our students to be able to collaborate and will have a greater amount of equipment and space for them to operate in. So we look forward to that transition really becoming complete as we get into early 2016. Love it. Love it. Looks like it's full steam ahead for the school. And it looks like you're having a good time. Every time we talk, I can feel the enthusiasm about the things that are coming from you. So congratulations on the job well done so far. Well, Frederick, thank you very much. And certainly, as folks want to keep in touch, both students, faculty, staff, administration, uh, you can follow us on our Facebook presence, Brooks Institute, as well as brooks.edu. And we'll be keeping everyone up to date as we continue to expand in the future. Excellent. And then for extension, where can they go to, to check out those online those courses? That's also uh, Brooks Extension. You can Google Brooks Extension or directly on our website. We have a link right on the homepage and you can get uh, to see those workshops that are available to the community uh, here nearby. Perfect. Dr. Gramling, thank you for taking time today. Very exciting. I'm honored to be part of the school in, in my small part. And uh, I'm excited to see where things go in the future. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care, Tim. All right, guys, it is time for some listener Q&A. This week's question is from Laura. I'm going to paraphrase her question here. She says um, she wants a career change, and she's decided that she wants to photograph web celebrities like you three. And she says <laughs> since she's new to all this, she wants to know how she should proceed, what gig she should take, like how should she educate herself to help her on the path to gain experience and influence in this industry. Valerie... You're a web celebrity. What should, <laughs> what should listener Laura do in order to get better or not to break in and then start photographing people that are web celebrities? Well, she needs to build a very solid portfolio that's going to blow them away. But uh, it just seems odd. Why web celebrities? And is she going to go to all those locations? It seems like, I don't know. I don't know. It better know. be good if she wants to be, uh, you know, uh, sent to all those, uh, yeah, flown to all those locations where they are because they're all over the world. So that's an interesting. interesting uh, I've never heard of that. That's quite. It could be an interesting project, though. I mean, I would, I yeah. would want to see. I don't know if there's a book in it, but at least an article or something of like these are these are the people these are the people in this particular genre. And with this many followers, and this is a, a little photo story about them, and a blurb about how they got famous, you know, or yeah. pseudo online famous. I don't know. Rob, what do you think? You got any advice for Laura? I think it sounds more like a personal project, really, than a than a yeah. career. But I, I think your idea about putting the book together would be fantastic. Right. Yeah, that's but a good idea. You would start with by you know 
getting trained as a photographer and understanding how that works and you know studying portraiture and and probably environmental portraiture specifically mm -hmm. and then um, you know like I said that's probably not going to be your job you know right. your job is going to be um, as a portrait photographer or um, you know wedding photographer something involving people probably so you, you build your chops and then again that's going to be a side project like hey I want to do this book and I'd love you to be in, love for you to be in it. I think she'd probably be surprised how many people, if she emailed them and said, "Hey, I'm going to come to your place. Can I make a beautiful photograph of you?" It would be like, sure. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, it, yeah. With that know, approach, for sure. I mean, how many people have heard of how many photographers anyway? It's not you know, photographers aren't necessarily famous outside of photography most of the time, anyhow. So yeah, probably be just flattered, you know. And and Laura, you have your first two subjects here, Rob Knight and Valerie. Yeah. <laughs> agreed. How many times? First subject. <laughs> but Brian, Brian, what do you think? Any? I and, and I'm glad you're on the show, Brian, because you've you've interviewed tons of web celebrities, from Guy Kawasaki to, I mean, the list goes on and on. If somebody like Laura wants to dive in and shoot, do photos of these folks, what what advice would you give her? So it's really, really, really complicated, actually, to um, to get access to such high-profile celebrities um, as you know a guy Kawasaki or a Sally Hogshead or you know I mean, like you said, Frederick, on, on the Spreading Photographer podcast, I've had like the privilege and the honor of of interviewing so many New York Times best-selling authors, and um, it's it's like I said, really complicated. But I'll just I'll sum it up like this: um, just ask. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going and, there. I know. And yeah, everybody's afraid to ask, right? I, well, and you know what? Like, I'm I'm kind of being facetious, facetious about it, but it's like, yeah. it, it's it's actually so surprising how open people are when you when you simply get yourself out of the way, because that's really what it is, right? I mean, so many and I, without going you know all philosophical about this, it's like so many of the times we actually don't achieve the things we want to achieve because we just put ourselves in the way. We yeah. we put ourselves you know we we have all these insecurities or we put these fears in the way and whatever it is and it's like you know what just shut that part of your brain off and just reach out and ask and I promise that you'll be able to to do whatever you want to do in life and that's like just sort of I know a very broad statement but that's how I've done everything I've done that's how a lot of people have done the things that they've done is they've just had the courage and the bravery to get out there put their name out there and just ask and you'd be, surprised, you'd be surprised what the world will put back to you when you uh, have that kind of mentality. Sage advice, and I, I tell you, yeah, that's 100% true because it, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I know several people that are that are plagued by the whole analysis paralysis disease, right? Yeah. They'll just overthink stuff and think about it and think a little bit more than, okay, you know, maybe I'll do it after I do these three things, and then they never do it. Then someone else does it, and they're like, wow, that guy was so lucky that he did. You know, yeah. Brian is so lucky to have had a conversation with Guy Kawasaki. I had that idea back in, you know, <laughs> thousands, but I never did so, it. You know what's actually an interesting thing? This is a challenge that I've I've always given myself, and it's something that I think maybe perhaps, uh, you know, the, the listener there can take to help them is I have this rule that whenever I have an idea, I have to do something that moves me towards achieving that idea before I move on to another idea. So if I'm like, oh, I'd love to like whatever, blah, 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 Guy Kawasaki, it's like I have to go and follow him on Twitter, reach out to him, send him an email, do something to put that into action and to start building that momentum. And you'd be so surprised how many times that ends up uh, coming back in your favor. That's yeah, how I know, met Frederick. Example, sorry, Valerie. You know, a good example of this is, Brian, you and I meeting, right? Did yeah. you send me an email? You I just. Did. 
out of the blue, I get an email yep. from Brian. Very well written. Wasn't long because yeah. you don't want to write long emails, and you know, it was a very considerate, short email. I'm like, yeah, yeah. why not? And now yeah. look, you're on the Twip Network, yep. and you have your own show. Not because of me, but you have yep. your own show, and you know, we're friends now. You totally. know, because yep. of one email, just because you tried, and you were like, oh, exactly. that guy would never respond to me. You yep. just tried. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's how you and I met, Frederick. I I emailed you and I said you don't have. I like your show, but you don't have enough. Work, you don't have enough girls on it. Exactly. And I you still said, don't okay, have. Okay, you're on. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the way it works. I mean, I think that is. I think we hit on a really important thing here because that's, yeah. you know, even even the Twip Network and Twip and the projects that I'm involved in, you could boil them all down to experiments, right? Yeah. I'm just, I look at life as an experiment. Everything I do is an experiment, you know, and that way by looking at these things as an experiment, I take the burden of success off of my shoulders because if it fails, it was control group A, then I'll try control group B and I'll learn from the mistake and try something different. Like this network building thing, we're building it, you know, of course it's comprised of people smarter than me, so the chances of success are high, but still, it's all experimental, right, Rob? I mean, do you look at things that way? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, right. when you asked me to do my show, I'd never even been on Twit before, so yeah. uh, this, is the, I've, this is the first time I've been on the mothership. So That's right. Yeah, which having is really never done a podcast before, you're like, hey, do you want to do the travel show? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And then I was like, what the hell am I going to do on this show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see oh, honey, we got to do a podcast. What's a podcast? <laughs> Seriously. But that's, that's how I've approached everything in my photography. I mean, I went from photographing children to photographing food. And and overnight, somebody asked me, do you, do you shoot food? I said, sure, I do. And I had never done that. It's probably nothing harder than photographing food. Yeah. And I said, well, you know what? What is the risk? If I don't do a good job, I'm not going to charge the client. Nobody's going to get hurt. And I did a really good job. And I shot food for many years after that. And I was very successful at it. Yeah. And it's like you have to, you have to try. And it's true. So many people don't succeed because they're afraid to ask or they're afraid to give it a shot. I've never been afraid to try anything. And I, I think, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I mean, and you know, not to go all Tony Robbins on this show, but <laughs> like the the whole idea of failure is a gift. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it sucks. Yeah, of course, because we're all human. But failure is a gift, right? Because yeah. from the standpoint of if you try something, if you fail, that a it means you tried it. Um, but if you try and fail, then you know what doesn't work, and you're one you're one step beyond the guy that hasn't tried it yet. So you know, you know that if I do this, then that thing over there it doesn't work. So you can try something different. Mm -hmm. It's like the Silicon Valley startups. Like here in Silicon Valley, uh, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, have failed more than they succeeded. You know, it's like you. How many failed companies do you start before you do a Twitter or uh, you know whatever that's that's your big gazillion dollar baby, usually there's a long list of corpses behind you before you hit that one good one. If they give up on the on one of those corpses, they never would have gotten to the the Facebook or the Flickr or the Twitter or whatever to be successful. And then of course it's the whole uh, iceberg metaphor. You know, people only see your success. So they only see the part of the iceberg that's above the waterline. All the failures below the waterline, <laughs> nobody sees those and they think, oh Rob Knight is just lucky because, you know, whatever reasons. They don't know all the stuff that you went through to get to where you are today. Yeah. That's right. And nobody said we learn from our successes, but we only learn from our mistakes. Exactly. 
exactly. when you screw up, that means you're pushing yourself and you're getting outside of your comfort zone and you're trying new things. And otherwise, what's the point, right? What's the point? Yeah. yeah. Life's too short. You can't just uh, sit there and wait for things to happen. Yeah, and I know so, you know, Valerie. You're like, I don't know what you're made of, but you. <laughs> if you folks, if you ever go on a workshop with Valerie, it is the most awesome experience you could possibly do. Because Valerie will take you. Like, go. I suggest the Parisian one. Because if you go on a Parisian workshop with Valerie, you're gonna go around Paris. You're gonna see Paris. You're gonna enjoy Paris like a Parisian. And enjoy, like we're talking about new things. You will be doing new things <laughs> if you go on one of those workshops. And Valerie has, I think you're, Valerie's powered by dark energy because <laughs> <laughs> she does not get tired. Does not get tired, though. Good, oh. good, good. All right, guys. So, uh, Twip listeners, if you have a question you'd like us to tackle on this show, just visit us at thisweekinphoto.com. There's a submit a question link on the page. Just click on that, and you can send us a verbal audio question, or you can just type us a text um, question and send that in. That'll show up in the email, the Twip email box. All right, guys. Let's jump into the picks of the week segment. Remember, your pick can be anything you want to recommend to the Twip army, as long as it, it is somehow related to photography. Valerie, I'm going to let you go first. What's your pick of the week? Uh, yes, it's a book by Rocky Nook, and it's the Fujifilm X-T1 111 Expert Tips at uh, Rocky Nook. And I'll put the link. I think it's like 10 bucks uh, in the Kindle version and 20 bucks in a print version. And why why are you recommending this? Well, it, there are not very many books about the Fuji film, Fuji cameras in general, and uh, about the XT1, which is my backup camera. Uh, I don't think there were very many of those until this one came out. Maybe Brian was aware of some, but I wasn't. And uh, can so, I ask Valerie why? And Brian, you can chime in on this too. Rob, I'm I'm pretty sure you don't shoot Fuji, but why why? Are you, why is there such love bordering lust for these cameras? Like, what is it? <laughs> I've never you know, seen anything like it. Really? Yeah. I mean, not even when I shot Nikon, I loved my Nikon gear, and I still do have some Nikon gear. Love my Nikon gear, but I hear, like, when Brian was describing shooting Fuji, he was saying words like life-changing and, you yeah. know. That's, that's how I feel, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so why? What's so special about this box? Frederick, we can't tell you until you try it. Secret. And then, and then you'll find out. There's, there's a little, there's a handshake, there's like a little code, there's a basement you have to go down to with a little <laughs> door with a small window. You'll, you'll find out everything you're looking for. Oh, so you're saying the Illuminati uses <laughs> XT1s. <then. laughs> uh, Valerie, can you put a, a, a fine point on it? Why is, the, why is Fuji so magical? I don't know. For me, it was really, it, it's not the X-T1, it's really the X-100 because it's the limitations again, and it's it really is the camera that, be, and I've said that many times, people are probably tired of hearing me say that, but it's the camera that really became an extension of my vision, mm -hmm. and it's definitely the camera with which I've done my best work um, by far. I mean, I... And I went from the 5D Mark II to the X100S. I mean, talk about a leap. Uh, and I never looked back. But then, again, I, I wasn't shooting professionally with it. It was really for my for my street work. And, no, for everything, actually. I shoot everything with it. Um, but it's definitely the, the camera that fits me. Wow. Rob, do you feel left out? 
No, I don't feel left out. I, I think they, there's a lot of stuff that goes into the Fuji, um, you know, cult or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> there he Brian, is. You can say Brian it. Touched on, Brian touched on the mechanical aspect of it. You know, there's dials and, and yeah. things like that. That, that so adds to it. That's what Bill Fortney told me. I was talking to him about using the cameras, and that's what he said. He said, this reminds me of when I was a kid and using cameras. You know, I, I set the shutter speed and the aperture with a dial, and I like that. And uh, the other thing is, you know, Fuji JPEGs have a look to them. So it's just like, you know, whether you're shooting Kodachrome or you're shooting, you know, uh, whatever film stock that you decide to use, Fuji has that look to it that a lot of cameras don't have. So I think it's a combination. I, I'll tell you, I'm afraid to try. I've never shot a Fuji, and I'm afraid to because I don't want to be, like, tainted and, like, be like, oh, I got to go get one now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna abstain, you know. It's kind of like, nah. I'm even not gonna look, go on that car lot because I'll know I want that particular car, you know. I, I had one, but it was before the autofocus was was yeah. more than dog slow. It was. It I was heard about a couple that years ago. Yeah, it was frustrating. All right. Well, thanks, Valerie, for that pick. Brian Caparici, I'm gonna let you go next. What's your pick of the week? <laughs> okay, so this this isn't fair because I didn't plan this out after this whole conversation. Um, but my my pick of the week is the <laughs> Fujifilm new firmware update to the X-T1. <laughs> and, and I know I know it seems so silly that, like, oh, my gosh, Brian is doing a, a firmware update as his pick of the week. Yes. But seriously, like, like okay, this is – and this is just to, to quickly, like, it's nice because it extends the conversation that we just had. Like, one of the biggest things that I am most impressed about with Fuji is they have this thing called their Kaizen philosophy, which means um, – constant improvement or it's loosely translated to be constant improvement and this firmware update that they just gave the Rex T1 which is for all arguments sake what is it Valerie a year old a year and a half old mm -hmm. something along those lines right it basically makes the X-T1 a brand new camera like it like quadruples the autofocus and I'm, I'm using numbers that aren't aren't substantiated so don't actually quote me on quadruples the autofocus speed but it it improves the autofocus speed it improves like every like so many different functions buttons the way that it works the menus it improves the camera in ways that other manufacturers only improve their cameras by releasing a new camera yep. and making you buy it like come on that is amazing and it's a free update for Fuji users like, yeah. come on, like, this is, I, and, and yeah, like, am, am I getting passionate about it? I totally am. But it's like, <laughs> it's insane that a company that, like, Fuji will, will take the feedback, and literally they take the feedback from their users. The one in particular, and I'll totally take this, like, as, like, a quasi-claim to fame, but um, the one update in the, in the, the version for um, the firmware was that before you were never able to select uh, a shutter speed without actually physically changing the dial. And so Fuji flew me down to New York back in the fall time to do some reviews on some upcoming cameras and give them some feedback with, with a bunch of other ex-photographers. And that was one thing I said is I said, if I put it in either B mode or T mode, let me just use the back dial just to change the shutter speed all the way from the lowest shutter speed to the fastest shutter speed. And they put this in the update. They're like, oh, that's a good idea. We could do that. And they put it in the update. Like, are you kidding me? Like, what other company actually listens to an like the average user's sort of, you know, critique or feedback and then goes and says, yeah, we'll do that for you. Oh, and by the way, it's free. And you don't have to change anything. You don't have to buy anything. Like, yeah. 
I, okay, I'll stop uh, there. But but that, see, that's my you know, I have a I get in my head I have Brian I have you and a bunch of other photographers standing around in like Fuji HQ with a bunch of guys <laughs> with white lab coats on and clipboards like scribbling down your ideas. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> No, uh, it's, it's, mode. Yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I just seriously think it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what they're doing, and I just love their, their dedication to the art and craft of photography, and actually, almost the opposite of what we talked about uh, with Kodak, right? I mean, Fuji is listening, they're adapting, and they care, and they're moving with it. So I love that, and the update that they put out, I think it was just yesterday it came out, um, was mind blowing for all Fuji users. So that's my pick of the week. Wow. Well, thank no, you no. because I probably would have found out. You know, in a few weeks, <laughs> actually do it now. You're gonna download that tonight, right, Valerie? Right. <laughs> no, Rob. Just to to put a full circle on this, what are you shooting? I know you're not shooting Fuji. What are you shooting? I I shoot the uh, the Lumix GH4 most of the time. Okay. And and have you found that Panasonic is who is a sponsor of this episode, by the way? Have you found that they're responsive to you when you ask for changes and updates and that kind of thing? There are pretty frequent firmware updates. Yeah. Uh, the last one was. Um, Mostly sort of cine features, you know, mm -hmm. uh, film-oriented features. But um, you know, the autofocus on the GH4 was already faster than anything when it came out. Um, and so there's there's not a lot that that when you use the GH4, I don't feel like, man, I wish this was different and that was different. And you know, it just kind of works. Yeah, um, it works like a camera, and it doesn't. I don't know. Not that you know, it was the perfect <laughs> camera, but. Right. So basically, what Rob is trying to say so eloquently, uh, <laughs> Valerie, oh, here is we that go. his camera was already there, and you guys are no. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. Talk about pitchforks. Now the Fuji right? pitchforks. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. You know what's great too about the Fuji? And I don't know if hey, other don't, cameras don't catch have up. That. It's fine. It's don't catch up. <laughs> uh, you know when you're in Lightroom, like yeah, I shoot raw, but with and and the JPEG. Who was saying earlier? Is it Brian? That the JPEG with the Fuji mode are just amazing. But in Lightroom, if you go to the bottom right of your, you know, when you're uh, in developing mode, uh, developing module, mm -hmm. you can actually go and bake in the Fuji, um, whatever. The color, uh, the camera calibration. Calibration, right. Yeah, yeah and that would be, you know, the JPEG version of, if you shot RAW and JPEG, for example. Yeah, yeah. So you can, you can do that in Lightroom in one click. Yeah. One day I'm gonna play with that camera, but I'm telling you, I'm I'm keeping I'm staving it off, kind of like me and drones. Like I have to get a drone because we are we're developing a drone show for the Twip Network, so I have to get a drone. Um, we should develop a Fuji show then for the Twip Network. I should, uh, but that would be more of a mirrorless show. Okay. Know. Gotta be gotta be egalitarian. So. <laughs> All right, uh, Rob Knight, what is your pick of the week? Thanks, Brian. Well, I've, I've got this Fuji. No, not really. Um, I've got a ball head. <laughs> Uh, this is called the Unique Ball, and my buddy Charles Glatzer had this at a um, a show that we worked together, and I'm not impressed by ball heads. I've seen every ball head, and they all work pretty much the same in a different shape, but um, I got this specifically to use with my uh, spotting scope, which on my GH4 works like a 1200 millimeter lens, so I use that for wildlife, and it's awesome, but um, it basically works like a regular ball head, right, if you use the bottom... Uh, locking knob, and then if you lock that, say level it, then you can use this red knob, and you've got a pan and tilt head, mm. so it doesn't you know flop over to either yeah. side. So for a long lens like 
um, like the spotting scope or just like a conventional long lens. It works great for that in place of a gimbal. Um, it's also great for video because you've got a pan and tilt head mm. and or a, uh, a ball head, whichever you need at the time. Hmm. So this saves me from carrying a separate video head if I'm going to be shooting video or using uh, the spotting scope. I like that. And it's in twip colors, too. I like that. There you go. Very cool. And where, where we're all going to get one. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's uh, apparently it, it just started being brought into the States uh, when I was looking for uh, links today. It's been available in Europe for a while, but I know uh, B&H has them. And uh, I got mine from Charles Glatzer, but I don't. I see that he's not selling them. I think um, Lenscoat was uh, importing them, and I'm not sure if they still are, but I know B&H has them. Very cool. All right. Very cool. All good picks of the week. We had uh, basically one combined pick of the week and a, <laughs> a fluid head. Uh, my pick of the week is a site that I hope photographers will check out. It's uh, some friends of This Week in Photo called uh, Breed. And I'm trying to bring up the URL now. Um, Breed, they're, a, uh, they're for photographers that like to shoot fashion and, and that genre of photography. And what they do, they have lots of training on the site. It's a community. It's a newsletter, and I get a. They get a. They've got tutorials, a forum, classes, interviews, etc. But it's all on fashion photography. And I interviewed the uh, the founder of the company. She's a uh, she's a fashion photographer and has been for many years. And one one thing that I took away from that interview was her. She said people get confused when they talk about fashion photography versus just taking pictures of pretty people, right? Fashion is about the clothes. So when you're shooting fashion photography, you're actually photographing the clothes and the person wearing the clothes or the item is kind of secondary to showing the actual garment or whatever. And that's true fashion photography. It may look sexy. It may be, you know, uh, provocative or whatever, but it's still all about, about the clothing. And uh, that kind of translates into their site. One of the cool a cool um, tutorial or walkthrough that they have on the site today that I saw just came in through email was a walkthrough on how some photographers are creating black and white images using Capture One. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing that over and over again, the whole idea of using Capture One as a as your, your post-processing tool of choice, especially since Aperture went away. There's only, you know, a couple players out there, and Capture One seems to be notching up and up and up. So check it out. We'll link to it. The website URL is jointhebreed.com, jointhebreed.com. So definitely check them out. And if you sign up for them, make sure you tell them that you uh, heard about them over on This Week in Photo. All right, guys, before we end the show, I want to just find out what you guys have going on. Valerie, what's happening in your world that folks should know about? Uh, well, uh, recording a lot of exciting episodes on uh, First Street Focus mm -hmm. because I just got back. I just got back from Rome and I'm heading to Paris next week, so it's kind of a recording marathon in between to get ahead. And uh, and actually, um, I just had one cancellation for Paris at the end of September for the week-long workshop, so there is one spot up for grabs, and those workshops sell out months in advance. So. Um, so who knows? Maybe a TWIP listener will want to grab the spot. So it's on the so website. So TWIP listeners, we record this show May 11th. <laughs> so this will hit the airwaves or in the TWIP feed the night of Friday. Uh, what is Friday? So Friday the uh, 15th, 15th. It will be live, but typically they go live on the 14th. So my bet is by Saturday <laughs> that slot will be gone. So you never Valerie's, know. 
You never know. Well, after you just spoke so highly of it, probably. <laughs> I know. I mean, come on. That, that's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of trip. I'm still oh. looking at images from that trip. So, Good. very cool. Well, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure thanks. having you on the show. And congratulations on all your success with Street Focus. Somebody sent a – you share with me a comment someone sent in saying that they sleep with Street Focus or something. What was that? <laughs> yeah, they said <laughs> – yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> something, Valerie's blushing. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, well thanks for they coming like on, Valerie. They like to sleep with me and my guests. That's how they learn or something yes. like that. <laughs> yes, love it. Very cool. All right, well, thanks for coming on. Uh, Brian Caparici, what about you? What do you have coming up? Um, what do I have coming up? I'm a wedding photographer, and here we are recording this on May 11th, and so we are at the tip of the season right now. So, uh, so that's pretty exciting. I mean, obviously, uh, I, the winters get long for me. I always miss shooting weddings uh, in the winter time. So this time of the year is always a, a nice welcomed. I always welcome it <laughs> as a yeah. wedding photographer. So that's keeping me busy. Um, obviously, this week in in photo or you know, weddings, we're doing lots of recording on that. We're recording again this week. Uh, we're talking about the wedding consultation and how you can book brides uh, at the consultation or at the meet and greet. So that's going to be a really fun discussion with uh, Bruce and Robert. So we've got that going on. And then I've, I've talked about it before, Frederick, here on the show, but we're building uh, Sprout Studio. Mm -hmm. So the first all-in-one sort of um, business management system, including albums and proofing and sales and all that for photographers. So we're up to uh, nine or ten people on our team, and we just hired three more developers for that. So I'm CEO and, and founder of that, so I'm managing that whole team. So we're, we're out in beta now, and we're having a lot of fun. The feedback is incredible, and uh, just really excited to get that into the hands of all of the the thousands of people that we have sitting on a waiting list right now that are just like barking at us to, to wait that to get to cool. it. So we're really excited about that. So if, if TWIP listeners want to get on that waiting list, where do they go? Yeah, totally. So if you go to getsproutstudio.com, you can uh, find out more about that and what that's all about. Very cool. Get Getsproutstudio.com. Yep. G-E-T, sproutstudio.com. Excellent. Well, cool. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate oh, of it. Of course. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. All right. Last but not least, Mr. Rob Knight, what's going on in your world? Well, I'm with Valerie. I'm trying to cram in a bunch of interviews in between trips, but um, this weekend, um, I'm doing my first workshop of the season with our good friend Rick Garrity. Oh, Rick. Um, yeah, we're doing six workshops this year, the Digital Photo Adventures series, and we're going to the coast of Maine this weekend for the first one, so that's going to be awesome. And um, I'm actually, uh, Valerie mentioned Rocky Nook, and I'm actually writing a book on the Lumix LX100 for Rocky Nook that'll be out, I'll be finished with it by the end of the summer, so. Excellent, the LX100, right? That's one my right now. That's my favorite camera. I love yeah. that camera. A lot of people say that, yeah. So this is going to be a book about some of the advanced features and just to make sure that, it, that you're, you know, taking advantage of of everything that camera can do. It's not a not a uh, you know here's what the aperture is, here's the shutter speed kind of a book. It's more advanced than that. So right. And you you wrote a book for Peach Pit Press before on the GX7 and the GM1, right? Yep. Yeah, it was a snapshots to great shots book. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And this is your this will be your second book? Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, congratulations. And thanks. thanks for coming on. And finally having you on the show. I mean, after what? <laughs> you're like 900 episodes of... of, uh, of 927 episodes and uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I think 30. I think last week was episode number 30, so... Cool. Awesome. Well, welcome welcome to Twip Proper, and I'm sure you'll be on more and more. So. Thanks a lot. Very cool. All right, guys. All of you, fantastic. 
And listeners, that brings us to the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. I want to thank our sponsors, Panasonic, FreshBooks, and Animoto for their support of the show. Um, Be sure to check out our website over at thisweekinphoto.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. Weekend Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. <laughs>